Hi, this is Aileen from the Utajua Hujue podcast. A little heads up, I do swear a lot. As you can remember, it's not about the quantity, it is about the quality. And I am a quality swearer. So if it's not your thing, or if you're a little too young, you have a choice to make. And for those who don't mind, let's start the show. How could thousands of soldiers who have been trained to ensure they keep law and order in this country, how could they be yearning for our blood like that? What transpired here on the 10th of February 1984 has now popularly come to be known as the Wagala Massacre. Hi, um, so I just woke up and I'm feeling a little rough, but we are going to persevere. We are going to what? We are going to persevere. So let's just, let's just take this back. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Utajua Hujui podcast, a podcast where you realize that you may be complicit in a massacre, but I put the cart before the horse again, um, and... You know, I haven't even explained myself or how I've been or told you what I'm drinking and just, 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 just wait. So like, how have you guys been? Have you guys been flourishing? Has the prosperity people spoken to your lives at the beginning of the year borne fruit? And even if you're no better off now than you were yesterday, that's okay too. Things will get better. And I hope that you have the strength to get through it. Um, what about me? Um, to be honest, I'm trying to make better decisions and be more intentional about my life and my time. Um, unfortunately, I fear that this has taken like a micromanaging spin, wherein I've allocated everything in my life for specific time in which it can be done, including like emotional breakdowns and panic attacks. So it's nice that my mind, um, you know, honors the <laughs> honors my schedule, but I'm not sure how long that can last, you know. So having said all this, what am I drinking today? So today I'm drinking whatever is in my thermos. So um, in case you don't know, on Fridays at the office, it's a little bit more casual for us. Like we're allowed to bring in a couple of drinks. And usually I just like take something and put it in my in my thermos. Now, because I've been cutting down on my drinking, um, I don't typically finish what's in my thermos. And I typically also tend to forget that there's alcohol in my thermos because like I, I'm not drinking as much anymore. So I don't think about it. So hang on, let me figure out what I'm drinking. I think it's I think it's wine I think I'm drinking wine today oh hang on let me taste it oh yeah it's wine it's a dry red wine okay it's not bad it's not bad um but uh to get through this episode I've also taken a little bit of something else because like while doing the research for this episode I just kind of felt my mental health deteriorating ever so slightly because it's just it's just so much and I know that there are far worse massacres I know that there are far worse you know genocides even but still like this level of just fuckery and pain inflicted on so many people's lives and the fact that like not, not much has been done about it does take a toll on your human soul um but again I'm getting ahead of myself um so what are we talking about today um, if the introduction didn't give it away, if the title didn't give it away, if the description didn't give it away, today I'll be talking about the Wagala Massacre in 1984 and the treatment of ethnic Somalis in Kenya. The reason I want to talk about the Wagala Massacre, and for want of a better term, 
raise awareness on it is because I believe that I might be complicit. Like not literally because, you know, I wasn't even born, but implicitly for it was in my name or for it was in preserving the future of, of Kenya that the massacre was justified. And in 1984, I was the amorphous future the KDF thought that they were protecting. And in my silence and in my inaction, I continue to be complicit. Um, but once again, I'm getting ahead of myself. So what is or was the Wagala massacre? Um, allow me to quote from the Truth and Justice Reconciliation Commission, which was set up to investigate human rights violations and other historical injustices in Kenya after the 2007 POPEV, post-election violence. Um, they wrote, they released a report. And honestly, if you do want to go through just the fuckery of the Kenyan state, and if you ever want to realize that like a state is a separate entity from its people, and that a state basically exists just to preserve itself, like it's very Machiavellian, um, just go into the Truth and Justice uh, Commission report um, and just fully understand that this everything that they were able to get in that report is not everything that they were able to it's not everything that there ever was right because it's because a majority of these commissions the way that they're structured are very people dependent they're very witness dependent and if people are just unwilling to give information if people just refuse to speak there's only so much you can piece from historical records there's only so much you can piece from archives like you need witnesses to be like no no i saw it i felt it this is please we need to make sure it never happens again Anyway, so quoting from that report, they say, and I quote, by far the, Waga the Wagala massacre of February 1984 is the most spoken about massacre in Kenya and represents a tragic story of how a government can turn against and massacre its own citizens. According to one survivor, the Wagala massacre was a time when the government that should protect us ate us like a hyena eats a goat, end quote. Over the course of three days, government soldiers beat, raped, tortured, and murdered members of the ethnic Degodia clan, following clan-related conflict in the region populated by Kenyan Somalis. That would be Wajir County. The official death toll, according to the Kenyan government, was 57. Meanwhile, eyewitnesses claim that as many as 5,000 people were killed, and the Truth and Justice Reconciliation Commission, or TJRC, stated in its report that close to 1,000 people were killed at Wagala. The commission also stated that it was unable to determine the precise number of persons murdered, and we'll get into that, the reason why they were, able, they were unable to determine that later. So the massacre itself is a horrific and targeted act of systemic human rights abuse, but when viewed in isolation, it looks like the exception. But when one considers it as part of a greater narrative on how Kenya, or rather the Kenyan state, has treated its ethnic Somali population, one realizes that the massacre was the rule. So in order to understand what exactly happened in Wangala, we need to understand the entirety of the Northern Frontier District. In fact, the term Northern Frontier District is a colonial hangover. It is a term the British used when they controlled the area. In terms of size, the NFD generally refers to the physical area of about 102 square miles, nearly half of Kenya's landmass. It is presently occupied by the following Kenyan counties, Mandera, Wajia, Garissa, Masabit, Isiolo, and Moyot. Moyale. And these counties are populated by ethnic Somalis for the most part. Now, if you've ever seen pictures of Kenya, not like the shape of the country, but the ones with the greens and the browns, like those kind of maps, you will realize that the north of Kenya is all brown. And that is because the north of Kenya is bone 
fucking dry y'all and because kenya was envisioned as an agricultural powerhouse um the north was fucked because without agricultural potential the entire region was until the discovery of oil in like 2012 seen as useless and the and the people were treated accordingly harshly as if to punish them for the dryness of their home now the people who live in the district arrived in the area in the late 16th century without borders they were free to move from place to place which allowed a great deal of cultural exchange and intercultural mingling however this came to an end in the late 19th century when the europeans arrived like fucking thanos in the battle of wakanda sorry wakanda with like a very specific mission and willing to do whatever it fucking took to achieve it um except you know unlike thanos the british were extremely passionate about who they thought should live and who they thought were a burden on our resources i mean just ask prince william who i would call a motherfucker except i like princess diana too much to her dirty like that so i'll just call him a privileged ignorant man because good god how mm, you know what I, I i will leave a link in the description for you to understand what i'm talking about but in essence prince william was, was saying that population in africa is, is the reason why uh, our wildlife is endangered and it's like really really okay that's the reason okay um anyway nevertheless in the late 19th century as africa was being partitioned without the consultation of africans the somali people in the northern frontier district found itself as, as found itself in what would become kenya and there are three specific policies critical to understanding the way the british colonial administration of the northern frontier district created a psychological distance between um the impact of this ordinance and the lack of british presence was to give the ethnic somalis the capacity to solve their own disputes and handle their shit in 1926, the 1926 Closed Districts Ordinance sought to isolate the NFD from 1902, the Closed District Ordinance of 1926, and the Special District Administration Ordinance of 1934. In 1902, the British government implemented the Outlying District Ordinance. This ordinance effectively established British control in the NFD by enforcing frontier posts that were, as they argued, meant to limit raids upon the British territory by Abyssinian soldiers and also curtail westward migration to Somali. Now, the way this policy worked in practice, however, was establishing a physical presence in the area. Remember, the NFD is close to half of Kenya's landmass, so the British would need it to have, like, hella men and hella guns in the area so so what did they do they did the opposite and they barely maintained a presence in the district by 1909 less than 100 police officers were deployed to the region this meant that each officer was responsible for on average 1020 square miles that's like giving one random guy all of kisumu to manage by themselves one guy to each other in 1934 and and as a result, at independence in 1962, over 85% of Kenya's ethnic Somali population wanted to unionize with Somalia. But rather than respect the vote, the British, who already kind of like, fuck it, I just want to leave, like, I, I'll do whatever it fucking takes, let Kenya decide. And in 1963, the NFD and its inhabitants were welcomed into Kenya. Well, not so much welcomed in as subsumed and absorbed. 
And to this day, I have a feeling that Kenya only said yes because of just how much land the NFT represented, not out of like any feeling of camaraderie without ethnic Somali brothers and sisters. And I believe this had an impact on the way we would treat them in the newly independent Kenya. For if you only cared about the land and not the people on it, you see, for all the promises of freedom and equality and the rhetoric of independence and self-management, like before all this amazing fucking dream, the Kenyan state continued to treat now Kenyan citizens like the British had treated their colonial subjects, detaining people without trial, armed response to civil, to civil protest, and continued enforced isolation and lack of democratic inclusion. In fact, I mean, some would argue that Kenya was no worse than the colonizer they had overthrown. Um, I feel like for the people on the ground, they could have made the argument that in the business of that the business of oppression didn't close down; it just merely changed managers. For in treating the ethnic Somali this way, the state denied them citizenship. In fact, in 1970, Kenyan Somalis were still required to carry a special identity card as well as their you know, national identity card to prove that they were citizens and they were viewed. Now we need to change tracks for a moment and talk about the events that directly precipitated the massacre. One moment. Has to existing inter-clan conflict. Break, um, because my cat was meowing. Say hi to the audience, Loki. Hi, sweetie. Say hi. Hi. She's feeling a bit shy, but if you hear purring, that's her. She's very, very content right now. Um, and I think it, this, this will actually really helped because we're about to get into some real dark shit. Um, so the Wagala massacre began as an inter-clan conflict between the Ajuran and the Godea clans for resources, specifically land and water. Remember that northern Kenya is dry as a fucking bone, so these weren't your garden variety conflicts. The competition over resources was a literal matter of life and death. These groups went back and forth in battle as they had done for many generations, and the presence of the British did not fundamentally alter the long-standing patterns of interclass. Quoting once more from the TGRC report, and I quote, the district ordinance went on to create a number of internal borders designed to limit interaction. The borders created zones with which the British referred to as tribal grazing areas. The boundaries were strictly enforced. People caught on the wrong side of the prescribed areas could be fined up to 10%. Indeed, it did not take long for the solution, tribal grazing areas, to turn into the problem as the different clans sought to access the traditional patches of land and water regardless of the new restrictions and boundaries, end quote. Did not help that the boundaries themselves were imprecise in breadth and length. The issue of enforcement was also fraught with difficulties, as a skeleton staff of overworked district administrators were the only permanent members of, or the only permanent government representatives there. Um, well, the clans in Wajir were invited to submit memorandums detailing their claims to the land. When the Arjuran clan submitted their memorandum, they contended that they were the rightful owners of the land. They dated their claim back to 1700 AD, where they apparently first arrived in northern Kenya. The community represents itself as honouring the Somali tradition of Shigat that entails hosting outside clans in need of help, protection, and patronage. This this Arjun elders argued was how the Degodea ended up in, you know, their traditional areas. In response, the government told both clans to wait a little longer. Land adjudication was coming, they said, except it never fucking came. And this failure precipitated the Wagala massacre. The inhabitants of Ajir and other districts were essentially left on their own to sort out very complex questions of resource allocation and 
Quoting from the TDRC report, and I quote, The Wagala massacre was the final product of a series of events that happened. By 1982, the conflict of resources had gripped what would become Wajir County. Something was just bound to happen. Shua Matui arrived in Wajir in 1982. Here is what he saw. And I quote, When I arrived here, I found a district which was in turmoil due to clan conflicts and clashes. When I inquired why they are fighting and why people are stealing each other's livestock and killing each other, I was told that primarily the clashes were due to watering facilities, grazing facilities, and even parliamentary seats, end quote. Essentially, resources, and no one was immune from the violence. By 1983, the violence was retaliatory. It, the, the, it functioned on this kind of logic. You clear one of mine, therefore I kill two of yours, and then I kill four of yours, so killing two of mine, but killing one of mine, like yours, and like on and on it went. Dead bodies piled up, and no one knew how to stop it. Now here, I'd like to make a note of something. Violence in an area does not mean that the state can respond with violence. It's like a parent responding to their children fighting by beating the living hell out of both kids. Although that is that classic African parenting. <laughs> As opposed to sitting them down and mediating shit. And to their credit, the Kenyan government did try mediation. In September 1983, five months to the massacre, the district commissioner held a series of peace talks in Mayale with the clan elders. And it did stop some of the violence. But days after the Mayale meeting, Anjuran fighters launched a daring attack on 18 Degudian Manyatas or homes or homesteads in a remote part of Wajir known as West Elders. One man died and 2,000 camels were stolen. In retaliation, members of the Degudia clan attacked a prominent Ajuran elder, killing him and five female members of his household. Two babies were found still latched on to their dead mother's breasts. And in response to the horrific violence, another meeting was held, where both clans committed to reparations and to return the stolen livestock. But this peace would not last long. 1984 continued on the same note as 1983. Almost without fail, the victims were described as Arjuran and the perpetrators as Degodia. On 29th of January 1984, an Arjuran woman travelling between Wajir town and Eldas was violently raped, beaten and left for dead after the two attackers first asked her what clan she belonged to. Two days later, on the 31st of January 1984, another Arjuran woman had her house broken into by armed men who stole money and property. In February, a 50-year-old Arjuan man was shot dead and four others were injured. The two clans were slowly, up, were slowly reaching a point of no return. And here I need to talk about what the Kenyan state could have done. For how do you respond to this much violence? By speaking softly and carrying a big stick? Or by just using a big-ass stick to get everyone in line? And I'm not asking this to justify the actions undertaken by the Kenyan state, but to better understand what motivated the initial military incursion into Wajir. Because history isn't simple. It doesn't have flawless good guys and perfectly evil bad guys. It has imperfect people who make imperfect choices with sometimes disastrous consequences. And if you are reading history and you don't feel challenged, then you're doing it wrong. But equally, how much of this violence could be blamed on the Kenyan state? Should its failure to follow through on land adjudication be considered the primary motivator of the violence? But in doing so, aren't you robbing the people on the ground of their agency and responsibility? What is clear is that what happened next did not need to happen. What happened next was a choice by a desperate Kenyan state who believed that they had no other options. 
You see, by 1983, the Kenyan state had come to expect that mediation would not work and started looking for other options. The district, commis the district commissioner, um, Mr. Matui, then compiled these options, most of them security-oriented in nature, into a single document titled Suggestions and Recommendations for Wajiri District Security. A central theme that runs through the entire document is that, to quote the TJRC report, Insecurity in Majira was caused by a lack of loyalty to Kenya, not only on the part of the gunmen, but also on the part of the general population as a whole. And just like that, I get, <laughs> I get a horrible pit in my stomach because I feel compelled to remind the Kenyan state and like, hear me out, it's not about you. It just isn't. Like, how can you take a very specific instance of inter-clan violence and inter-clan conflict over resources and boil it down to the reason why these people are, are fighting is because they're not loyal to Kenya? Like, motherfuckers, it, it's not about you. But more troublingly, why do you think the Kenyan government believes that the, the general population were disloyal? It's because of British colonial policy that kept the region isolated and separate, thus preventing the creation of a unified identity? Is it because the general population voted to, on the eve of independence, join Somalia instead? Or is it because the state failed to share the fruits of Uhuru or independence, so that the community rightly thought, why should I support you? What have you done for me? To remedy the lack of loyalty, the government flooded the region with pro-Kenya propaganda and set aside quotas for ethnic Somali students in national secondary schools in Kenya's interior. Both of these were designed to remedy the isolation that the British had enforced and that the Kenyan government had perpetuated. Remember the special ordinances from earlier? But none of this would address the violence immediately, and this is why military intervention was proposed. But first, the government tried to take everyone's guns. The Argeron surrendered 26 guns and the Rigodia handed in eight. It was a disappointing result from a district believed to hold, at the very least, at least a hundred weapons. The Argeron surrendered 26 guns and the Rigodia handed in eight. It was a disappointing result from a district believed to hold, at the very least, hundreds of weapons. There is no doubt that the Rigodia emerged as the villains in the eyes of the government in the faltering story of disarmament in Wajir. Security officials were far from impressed with a total of eight guns handed down on their behalf. To make matters worse, the Rigodia were blamed for the parade of criminal incidents, um, with nearly every single one of them involving serious gun violence. By the end of 1984, the attempt to disarm the Degodia had all but collapsed. To motivate the surrender of more weapons, the government shut the Degodia and their herds of livestock out of accessing wells and watering holes in Wajir district. In essence, they made the situation worse. Because remember, at the very beginning, and I've been very consistent and very careful about how I framed this inter-clan conflict, what is this conflict about? It is about the struggle for resources. One of these resources is water and the government to like and the government in response to this conflict over resources stops one group from being able to access these resources do you really think that's going to work did you really think that was going to work um along with the detention of the four prominent Egodia leaders early in January 1984, the closing off of the wells was intended as a collective punishment that would speed up compliance with the earlier order to disarm. However, the, the Degodia still retained their guns and continued to commit violence. 
On 9th of February 1984, one day before the massacre, 10 Degodia men armed with firearms killed six Arjuran men. They also shot three camels dead and burned three aerials to the ground, after which local government decided that it was fucking done. The police and military forces were brought in with a simple instruction, get the guns, stop the violence, do whatever you have to do. So on the 10th of February 1984, military based in Wajira rounded up 5,000 Begodia men and boys and proceeded to shoot, beat and torture them for several days on the Wajira airstrip. This was intended to be a punishment for anti-government activities and insecurity in the area. The citizens were told to take off their clothes and lie on the hot ground naked. Those who refused were shot on the spot. For the next three days, the rest were beaten and tortured, asked over and over and over again if they owned guns and where they were. They were there for days without food and water, baking in the hot fucking sun. Military officers would drink water right in front of the starving and dehydrated men to taunt them. Meanwhile, other troops raped women and robbed properties. Recalling the events of the day, a survivor of gang rape said, and I quote, hundreds of girls were asked, do you want your men back? They said, yes, every little girl or woman was taken away. They told us to follow them so that they could show us where our men were. So when we went with them to Makaror, the soldiers turned on us and we reached the place called Makaror and said, today there are no men for you. We are your men. No woman was spared. They did not care whether some were pregnant. They did not care when some women told them they were about to give birth. They did not care that some women were old. Every soldier came. There were so many soldiers. They were uncountable. There were no prostitutes those days. So these men were sexually starved. By then, I was nine months pregnant, says the witness. They raped me again and again until my unborn child came out. 20 women who were raped died. I saw them with my own eyes. Some women resisted them. They struggled with them. And because of that struggle, they were beaten to death. During the night, the place became a camp for only women to be raped. The dead bodies were taken away. We did not know where they took them. This was the first day of the massacre. And by the second day, things had degenerated. When senior officers had left the airstrip, the junior officers took it upon themselves to inflict more pain and suffering on the men and boys there. In fact, it was they who sealed the area off to everyone and prevented anyone from like finding out what was going on in the area. Another survivor of the massacre, remembering the events of the day, recalls, and I quote, In the evening at around 5pm, an army officer whose name I have forgotten, plus all his soldiers, came there. We were told to sleep on our stomachs on that soil. There is marm and soil on the Magala airstrip. We were told to slip we were told to sleep on that sand. Everyone was told to sleep on his stomach. In the night there was a lot of torture. When people requested for water or something of the kind, the soldiers would clobber them. Some were hitting us with stones. I know I some were hitting us with stones. I think you all know the Masai Panga that is normally sharpened on both sides. The soldiers could use those weapons on you without any mercy. We were told to sleep on bricks which were on the soil. They were walking on us as if we were the hard ground. This happened until the very early morning. 
By the second day, these men and children had been denied food and water for 24 hours. A witness who testified for the TJRC remembers seeing his father drink his own urine. One, in an attempt to get water, told the soldiers that he had hidden guns at home. Thereafter, he went home, drank water, came back out, told the soldiers he hadn't hidden any guns in there after all, and they took him back. Now, while this finessing is admirable and quite honestly brilliant, it was a risk because the soldiers could have equally killed him for wasting their time. There continued to be no food or water whatsoever until the evening of the 11th when a senior official who was not present made arrangements for supplies to be sent to the field. But when the supplies came, policemen restricted access to them. Those who tried were brutally beaten. And here I would like to pause briefly to discuss the nature of complicity. Why do you think the senior official was absent? I mean, think about it. Really think about it. The answer is plausible deniability. How can you be blamed for the atrocities if you do not see them? How can you take responsibility for the suffering if you were never there? To which I respond, bullshit. The answer should never be if you knew, but could you have known? But the latter is a much harder legal standard to prove, and here we are. Proving intent and knowledge beforehand is very difficult, mostly because without hard proof, everything else is like circumstantial. Ooh, by the third day, things had gotten far worse. Recalling those events, a witness testified, and I quote, On 11th, we were still sleeping on the sand. The sun was hot. We were not wearing any clothes. We were not given food or shelter. They continued beating us up, slashing us with knives and pangas and hitting us with rungus. They continued on throughout the night. At night, soldiers hit us with big stones. I remember someone called Mohamed Jilo, who was well-known in Majir. He asked them, why are you playing with us? Are we not Kenyan citizens? Why are you doing this to us? Are you not government soldiers? Are you not Africans like us? Why are you mistreating us? Two soldiers took a very big stone and started hitting him with it. The man was smashed on the ground. By now, men and boys were being led out of the airstrip at the discretion of soldiers and military personnel. Those that remained had a, had a far worse fate in store. On the last day, the senior official, the one who organized the food, made his return to the airstrip. With his return, rumors abounded that the men and boys would be sent back home, or Ethiopia and Somalia, an explicit acknowledgement that the government representatives did not view the, these Kenyan citizens as Kenyan. At this, the men and boys did the only thing they thought to demonstrate their Kenyanness. They began to sing the national anthem which, good God, is something. You have these men and boys who, despite being treated atrociously by the government, continued to identify as Kenyan, willingly. But this didn't work. According to the government, a stampede took place as the men and boys fought to be recognised as human, fought to be acknowledged as Kenyans. The stampede is what killed 57 people, the official government death toll, but survivors tell a very different story. Bashar Ismail Ibrahim, a survivor, claimed to have heard specific instructions given to soldiers, and I quote, anybody who is not seated should be, should be shot. And with that, the senior officials left. So there followed shooting the here and there without control, end quote. Thereafter, the survivors of the massacres were forced to pick up the bodies of their clansmen and load them up in a truck for, for transportation to a mass grave after which some of the survivors were released like nothing happened. 
Some stayed on the strip for a fourth night. Abdi Ismail Hilole was one such unfortunate person. He testified that he was simply held there and was not allowed to leave on the 13th as others were ferried away from the airstrip. He was airstrip, sorry. He was despondent. He did not know when it would end and feared that it never would. Eventually, everyone would be released on 15th February, but the damage had been done. Up to 2,000 people had died in the massacre, many losing their lives in the airstrip. I'd like to end this retelling of events with a quote from one of the survivors. And I quote, As to the calamity that befell us, only God can hear us. We were born in Kenya. I, I have never seen any other flag than the Kenyan flag. I'm 67 years old. I used to drink a bottle of milk, which I used to buy for 50 cents in those days. Today, if you need a bottle of milk, you buy for 100 shillings. I've lived for that long. What happened to us, I've never heard of it anywhere else. End quote. Those that survived the massacre fared no better. The government went on with life like nothing happened. Like they didn't destroy homes, families and people in service of security. Thousands of people remained hospitalised with industries. Thousands of people remained hospitalized with injuries they sustained during the massacre. Those that survived the massacre fared no better. The government went on with life like nothing had happened. Like they didn't just destroy homes and families and people in service of security. Thousands of people remained hospitalized due to, due to injuries they sustained during the massacre. Another female victim remained disabled due to the injuries she sustained during the massacre said, and I quote, they cut my leg, burnt part of my house, and asked me about Wagala. The Kenyan soldiers cut off my leg and injured my sister and killed my mother. My sister and I were in the hospital for five months, and you can even see the leg that was cut. Since that day, I am crippled, and it is the government that did this to me. End quote. In the debrief meeting thereafter, the team that orchestrated the disarmament of the Degadea clan and the subsequent massacre did not talk about what happened. Reading about it in the TJRC report, it seems like this was deliberate. If you don't speak about it, it didn't happen, like the burning of Black Wall Street or the concentration camps British set up in Kenya. When the government in Nairobi heard about what had happened, they established an independent commission. Instead, this commission did not investigate much. According to the TJRC report, the team did not seem interested in assessing any other aspects of the operation and its impact. They did not visit the hospital where the survivors were recuperating after the massacre. They did not ask about those who had died and instead accepted the explanation that they had been dumped. And they did not visit these dump sites, nor did they ask to see them. By the way, these dump sites still exist. Meanwhile, on the ground, aid workers were prevented from helping. Aid workers trying to get to the county were apparently stopped at roadblocks and were forced to turn back. Even the UK, fucking Britain, tried to help on the DL and kept it a secret out of fear that the government, our Kenyan government, would, re would overreact and make it harder to help. Quoting from the TDRC Commission report, and I quote, In early reports, the aid agencies said that they had seen 700 to 800 bodies that had been dumped in the bush, and that on 14th February, approximately 3,500 people had flooded the local hospitals and other medical facilities. Almost immediately, the hospitals were ordered not to treat the injured. The medical facilities were ordered to evict any degodia who had sought treatment and the mission sisters were ordered to provide no medical treatment on penalty of the mission being burnt down. At this point, I feel like I must clarify, these threats are being issued by the Kenyan government. 
These threats are being issued to aid workers and these threats are asking these medical professionals to break their Hippocratic oath of doing no harm. Like, oh God, I'm so tired of the Kenyan government. <laughs> it took three weeks for the Wagala story to hit the newspapers. The Kenyan government's response, as reported by Reuters, was, and I quote, the official newspaper of Kenya's ruling party said today that some local politicians and foreign press had exaggerated and distorted reports of a purported massacre by security forces in northeast Kenya. It is regrettable that some local leaders and the foreign press have set it upon themselves to distort the truth about the situation in Wajir. End quote. The Kenya Times said in, in an editorial, and I quote, they have deliberately exaggerated the magnitude of the conflict and made false claims. Now, it is worth noting this report came out uh, by Reuters in like 1984, like immediately three weeks after the massacre. Knowing what we know now, <laughs> it's very clear that the Kenyan government was lying from their fucking teeth here. Oh. More than a month after the massacre, the government released its official death toll at 57. Meanwhile, almost every single aid report, local accounts, local administrative reports was far higher, nearing thousands dead. So I must ask a question. What the fuck kind of bullshit was the Kenyan government pulling? In fact, all governments. I understand the impulse to mitigate or hide the full scale of your shitty behavior. We all do this to a certain extent. But when your fucking job is to protect the lives of the people in your care, you cannot and must not fail them again by lying about how many people you allowed to be hurt. And herein lies the problem. The Kenyan state did not regard the Degodia as people or as citizens. And this is often the first step in committing an atrocity, the dehumanization and the creation of an other. For if they are no longer people to you, or they're no longer citizens, then you can do whatever you want. It's like how we as a global community justify our treatment of terrorists and criminals by saying they deserve it because they are criminals. As if committing a crime suddenly means you no longer deserve to be treated with a bare amount of human decency. And that decency would come two months after the massacre, realizing that targeting an ethnic population as solely responsible for insecurity without addressing the largest systemic causes of insecurity was a bad idea. The government did its fucking job, kind of. <laughs> um, they recommitted to peaceful reconciliation of issues, but not to land adjudication. They also began looking into the massacre, but a proper inquiry involving and accepting the accounts from the survivors would not happen in 2010. And sorry, would not happen until 2010. The search for justice has not stalled for the victims of Wagala. However, so far, none of the perpetrators have been brought to justice and none of the families have been compensated for the loss of their loved ones. The only official recognition of the event is the monument recently erected by the Kenya National Commission on Human Rights in Majira Town. The commission, though, has recommended that the airstrip in Wagala be made into a national monument. In 2015, President Kenyatta issued a blanket apology and promised that 10 billion shillings, about $100 million, would be set aside for the Restorative Justice Fund. No victim or survivor has received the money to date. So now I must ask you all a question. Yes, all of you that are listening. Is this justice? Is this reconciliation? Can you say that as a country we have moved on from the massacre? 
you know, actually having asked you, having asked these questions, I feel like these may be the wrong questions. I think a better question to ask with reference to the Wagala massacre, massacre was whether it was inevitable. Now, I don't say, I don't like saying that a, a thing X or a thing Y was bound to happen, especially when that thing is an atrocity, because it absolves the perpetrators of blame. But that is not what I mean. What I mean is, does the existence of a state necessitate violence and the destruction of a people? That the process of state formation is inherently violent. Quoting from a paper by Cohen, Brown and Organsky, and I quote, National state-making is a historical process characterized by the creation of political order at a new spatial and institutional level. It involves the redistribution of the political control over power resources away from subnational collectivities and, po and polities towards central state apparatus. Historically, the centralization of power resources is a violent process, which, if successful, leads to the creation of an order at a new, more expanded level, end quote. In this way, they argue, Violence is a necessary prerequisite of state formation and state stability. So when I ask if this massacre was inevitable, that is exactly what I mean. No state exists that didn't violently oppress some of its citizens in order to exist. Um, none of them. Violence is a natural order of the state. And I think there are a lot of uh, political philosophers that I agree with me. I want to say Karl Marx, maybe uh, Max Weber definitely Niccolò Machiavelli. Um, and I will leave you with that one, that little thought to ruminate on. Um, thank you so much for listening. And I know this one was particularly brutal. Um, so do something kind for yourself after this. Give yourself a little hug. Um, figure out if there's anything you can do to better support the ethnic Somali population. That's exactly what I'm trying to figure out for myself. Um, yeah. Bye. <laughs>so much for listening to the Ultra Jua Hujui podcast. I am so happy to have been able to converse with you today. If you would like to suggest a topic or give me feedback or just talk to me about whatever you find interesting, you can find me on at utajuahujui.pod on Instagram. That is at u-t-a-j-u-a-h-u-j-u-i.pod uh, on Instagram. Um, you can also find this podcast on Spotify, Google Pocketcast, wherever you can find these podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and I really do wish the best for you.